Hi, news guest listeners. We're excited to bring you a special episode this month featuring Charlottesville Tomorrow CEO, Anjali Shaw, and the Markup Editor-in-Chief, C.C. Way, who talked about reimagining newsroom culture at last year's Independent News Sustainability Summit. Speaking of Lion events, we're excited to get back together again in 2023. The Southeast News Sustainability Meetup in Durham, North Carolina this October will bring together publishers from across the Southeast United States, and it will also host the 2023 Lion Local Journalism Awards Ceremony. You can learn more about this event at the link in the episode description. And now let's get to the conversation with Anjali and Cece. Thank you, everybody, for coming. We are going to jump right on in because there's a million things that Angelie and I wanted to talk about. Um, on the, for those of you who read the session description for the keynote, one of the things that we were actually quite excited about was this line about how um, as we approach sort of thinking about our newsrooms and uh, how we lead, one of those things that's sort of really centered is not assuming by default value in existing processes and thinking through how could we always do something better. And I think this goes in line with a theme of conversation that's been around for the last year at least. Uh, definitely something that Paul and I have talked about a lot about unlearning. What are we unlearning in journalism, right? So the first question that we're actually going to share about and ask each other, and I'll start with you, Anjali, is what are three things that you've shed in terms of newsroom culture? And it's a process, isn't it? Shedding sort of the habits that we have created over the years that may or may not be serving us or our communities very well anymore. Um, but I'll start with a really simple one because I came from like this very sort of high pressure daily uh, news and sort of magazine production, broadcast news production um, situation. And for me, in our really wonderful newsroom, I am unlearning the idea that you cannot rest when you need it. It's like so simple, like when you need rest, you should rest. Um, but it's a, hard, it's a hard thing for a lot of us and I think building that into our newsroom cultures is really, really important. And the other thing, you know, being in local news, I'm also learning, we have this amazing managing editor, Jesse Higgins, who <laughs> frankly teaches me this every day. Uh, rest is relative. You know, the amount of rest I need for uh, after I speak to a large group of people in a room or after I work on a story that's particular taxing, particularly taxing is different from the amount of rest somebody else needs. The amount of rest we need in a local context where the people we report on might be our next door neighbors or, you know, there's that proximity is so close might be different as well. So, you know, shedding that idea that we cannot rest when we need it uh, and that everybody sort of needs the same schedule of rest has, has been a process for me. That really resonates with me too because um, I've been in my role uh, at the markup for only two months and for the first month, my the question that I was obsessed with asking other people was in these types of roles, what are the new boundaries that people have set? What is an acceptable amount of time to work and not work and how do I even think about that? And so this idea of like rest being different for people but also that you deserve rest, <laughs> uh, very critical, right? Um, one of the things for me, right, and this goes back to sort of never assuming the status quo is how we should do things is on a very personal level for me, right? As journalists, I think it's a basic thing. When we do our reporting, we don't just assume what people are telling us is true, we check it out. And I think the way that we work also deserves that scrutiny. Um, but on a, on a very, very personal level for me, I think it's been very inspiring for me across the industry to be able to see very different people from all different types of, types and walks of life leading newsrooms. But in my own experience, my own personal experience, I've had incredibly diverse managers, but I've not personally been able to experience an incredibly just diverse level of EICs to model off of, right? And so when I was taking on this role, I, I was very conscious of sort of where I come from, right? And uh, how I talk and interact with people, especially digitally, because we're an all remote newsroom. And um, I think one of the things I sort of thought about talking about too is like, if I don't have uh, somebody like me to model off of, what parts of myself am I thinking about uh, keeping in my like regular day-to-day? -day? Is it just all of it? Uh, and to give you an example, right? So I, I'm a millennial. I love Hello Kitty. I play a lot of League of Legends for people who know what that is. But I also play and teach a lot of people how to play Dungeons and Dragons. 
right? And she I'm does like, do that. this is it's not true. a thing that I usually bond with my editor in chief over. And uh, you know, how do I uh, do? I cut back on the number of heart emojis I regularly send in Slack messages because that's just how I communicate. And I've decided to just keep all those things about myself, right? That's like clearly the way to go. Um, but it, that was an active decision that I had to make, right? And like, um, what what am I modeling off of? And and what does an EIC get to look like? And does it matter even like that question? Should it just be whoever you are? And I, you know, I think I've really learned like yes, right? It's it's so interesting to me because we both sort of came at this question first, starting with these things that feel very basic to your sort of core as a person. Um, but, you know, coming into a local news situation too, one of the things that I've had to shed also comes from my personal background too, which is that, you know, many of us in this room came up through journalism in pretty traditional ways, uh, or we might be children of immigrants, or we might have sort of pressures about what success in your career looks like. And I have really, really, uh, maybe early on, even while I was in national media, shed the idea that success is national media. That success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, we're so internally focused in our industry. You know, we come to these conferences like, who did you meet? Did they give you a grant? Did you get a job? Did you get a promotion? And for me, uh, I have always tried so hard to actually gauge the success of the teams that I work with, the work cultures that we have based on did the communities that we serve confer upon us that ability to lead? Did the communities we serve uh, give us that success? Rather than like everybody, you guys are awesome, let me tell you, but we are not the people who decide whether or not we are successful as journalists in this room. Um, so, you know, I had to really shed that, shed that competitive nature. And I have to also say, you know, like, if you want to get involved in local news, get involved in local news. Apply for a job in a local newsroom. Work with the amazing people, the local independent online news organizations. Work with them. Uh, don't join another organization and offer help don't, uh, from outside get involved, get into the local news economy, help grow it, help grow the capacity. Huge round of applause for that, 100%. Um, and I think, you know, uh, one, of, one of the sort of like things that I have thinking, one of the things I find myself thinking a lot about is that previous to my current role, I've spent a lot of my uh, career, whether it was at Open News or at ProPublica, thinking about creating change in various ways, whether it's changing how we work or changing how the industry works. And spending all of that time thinking about change gave me sort of a, I feel like at each level, I had a, a longer and longer time frame of how I thought about change. And one thing that actually now I'm shedding in resistance to that, which is very interesting, is that now that I'm in this leadership role, I'm also realizing how quickly in positions of leadership you can implement change, depending on how you go about it. And so um, for me, it's really, I, I've, I've done a couple of iterations of this, of explaining your values, explaining why you are trying something different, and then building upon that trust of like transparency and understanding with people. And then like we go on this change path together. We get actual feedback on it and then we iterate again. And um, it, it was something that I, because of my previous work had assumed would take a long time. And I, I will take, I'll talk about this a little bit later about moving at the speed of trust as well. But I realized very quickly that when you're on the same page about values, there's a lot that you can do together relatively quickly. That's so empowering because, you know, I think we're all sometimes there are things that we know we want to change about how our newsroom works, how the people we work with interact or, you know, the quality of their lives and their careers. Uh, and, and it's just really empowering to step into a position and co work cultures where you can actually do things quickly that help with that. Um, the other thing, sort of building on what you're saying, Cece, one thing that I've also sort of shed is that the idea that that is enough. Uh, you know, that the quick changes I make internally are going to be enough. And I learned this a lot from our executive director, Giles Morris, who's here too. Uh, actually, as leaders, we have to shed the idea that the only thing we're responsible for is our team. Because as leaders, I think we have to step up and speak about what we want to see in the change in the industry. We can't, like, 
make healthy workplaces and industries that devalues the work. So we have to step up and show our teams that we are stepping up for them and that we believe in them and that we think they are, you know, as important and as on par with organizations that have different revenue models or maybe get more funding than we do or get more sort of uh, uh, fame in our industry than we do. So that's been really, really important uh, learning for me also. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, the last shedding that I will share as well is um, something that connects to the first thing you shared, Angelie, about local news. And if you want to help local news and be a part of it, just be a part of it. Um, one of the things that I'm quite grateful for is that at ProPublica, there was a clear culture of we are not here to hoard, right? We are here to share. And so, um, you know, that literally, and you know, I came up, for those of you who don't know my background, I came up in journalism, not from a traditional path, but rather starting with data visualization and visual storytelling. I had sort of a coding design journalism skill set, and my first job was as a graphics editor. And so my path up has always been from more of like a technical perspective in addition to the journalism that I wanted to do. And so, you know, when it comes to sharing, being generous with bylines and who gets a byline, who gets credit and who gets prominent credit versus like a tagline at the bottom, having that culture sort of imbued as normal for me, but then also partnerships with other organizations, right? And um, I think for me, one of the things that I've been really excited to do at the markup is this idea of um, when we do something, and I, I feel very fortunate to have had a cycle of this already in the, next, the last two months, which is when we do like a national investigation and we have actual data and expertise to offer, right? There's no structure in which we do that. I just like reach out and I say like, is this interesting to you? Our data journalists will walk you through it, will answer your questions, will help you. And we'll like, I'm here to provide whatever support you might need. Um, and I think um, uh, if Sarah is here, uh, I hope she doesn't mind that I share one example where, you know, she has done some excellent reporting around investigation um, that we had published nationally and that she had focused on in, in Detroit. And she had asked me a question during this sort of like email exchange where she was like, like, do you um, want or need us to republish your national story? Like, what are the requirements around that? And this I, is Sarah Alvarez. Sarah Alvarez, yes. Um, and uh, I remember when I got that question, I emailed back right away, because I was like, oh, I don't, I wasn't prepared to be asked this. And I said, I just want you to do whatever is best for your community. Like, if that means republishing our national piece, do that. If that means not, like, that doesn't matter to me. Publish your piece that will serve your community, and that's all I want. And I think as a, as a way for a place that does national investigations, but often at a detail-oriented, like, local level, right, in our data analysis, that is a clear way for me to add value to another news organization's process and their community without really asking for any, any sort of exchange, right? And I feel like along the lines of what actually Sarah said in her previous panel right before this, the core mission is to serve communities, right? And so that is what I'm getting out of it, and that's sort of how our, our mutual contributions are existing in the world. Beautiful. I, I you know, thinking about uh, that sort of just radical openness of that, that, that I know working with CC on different projects and seeing your leadership in different organizations, you have this amazing ability to have that radical transparency be part of sort of the culture of everything you do. It trickles through everything, like from the revenue side, through the editorial, through the event planning, or frankly, you know, the 30-minute call that you would set up. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in one of CC's meetings. It is the most, like, affirming experience you can have. Um, First, we talk about our feelings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I am cactus emoji almost every day. Um, but that radical honesty, uh, I think that's a really hard thing, actually, especially when you have any uncertainty around what you're doing, which is like every day, right? Especially when you have any, any uncertainty around your revenue, when uh, you're trying to build something that has some resistance but uh, has a lot of support as well. It's scary. That radical honesty can be quite scary. And I've always wondered, Cece, um, how did you, one, for yourself, work that, get that kind of courage? And two, how do you help the teams and the people that you work with have that kind of courage, too? Um, I, feel, um, I feel like when I am able to be 
peak radically honest, it is because I've laid the foundation for that ahead of time. Um, and I think, you know, these con the concepts are not new. And so I'm merging things that I've learned from lots of different people or books or things that are like in the air about what good management feels and looks like. But for me often, right, um, I mentioned earlier moving at the speed of trust. And that's a quote from Adrienne Marie Brown. Uh, and um, I wrote that on my wall when I heard you say that. Yeah, it, well, when I first heard it, I felt like it really struck something in me because um, it really gets at this tension that you feel where you, you maybe want to be more honest with someone or you want to be more direct with someone, but it doesn't feel quite right because maybe you don't have that foundation of we understand that I'm coming from a place where all I want is to, you know, for us to do the best work possible. And those are my only motivations, right? Or um, all I want is to make sure that we're serving our readers, right? Whatever, whatever your core values are and um, having an actual connection with the other person, right? Whether that's your entire team, whether that's your entire newsroom, you need to build on top of a foundation before you can just immediately start like blurting things out. <laughs> and, um, and the way that I kind of like to think about it is that I definitely always test the waters first, right? I often don't start a relationship with someone being as, as radically honest as possible. And the way that I like to think about it is there's a difference between directness and bluntness. So bluntness is like, you know, train of thought, whatever I'm thinking, I just sort of put it out there. Directness is actually taking that, keeping the core of actually your thought, but removing anything that isn't kind, right? And uh, directness is basically adding kindness to your actual thoughts. Um, so you're not losing your point, but you're saying exactly what you mean to say. And I try to be as direct as possible in every conversation that I have with people. Um, and I think, you know, it stems from a place where often when I was a staff member, uh, I just wanted to know why, or if something didn't make sense to me, I just really needed it to make sense. And if those things weren't met, I was often very frustrated. And so now that I'm in this opposite position, I actually feel very compelled similarly to not have my staff feel that way, right? Like, I don't want you wondering or um, generating anxiety because you don't know something or you're too afraid to ask me. And so building that level of trust allows people, and I'm still working on it, right? I'm you know, two months into a new organization, I feel like I've built like layer one <laughs> of trust, but there's many, many more layers. But I always want people to feel like they can ask me any questions that they want, and then I'll tell them as much as I possibly can, starting with my own thought process. Yeah. I, I'm thinking a lot about the various publishers and news leaders and entrepreneurs who are here. Uh, I don't know if Irene Romulo is here from Cicero Independiente, but I think a lot about her organization um, because at its core, her organization started from a position of trust with community and built the, those layers up. And I think a lot of times when, when uh, particularly women uh, in leadership positions are asked about workplace culture, I think Maybe I'm putting up a straw man here, but I think often what people mean is like, you know, how do you make everybody feel good? Do you have staff retreats? Do you have, um, <clears throat> do you have like a, a really affirming evaluation processes? How does your HR look? And that's important, but I think actually that like core of the organization, the way it's built from, you know, the way the foundation is laid, uh, the values that it's built on is what makes your workplace culture at the core. And everything else supports that. Um, so, you know, I, I, I really think about that a lot, uh, especially if we're going to center community and service and the people we're trying to impact in our work. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And to, to tie this, this part of the conversation back to sustainability and also healthy newsrooms, right? I think the one thing I would say is that... Um, over the course of the last couple of years, um, I've talked to a lot of newsrooms leaders who are hesitant to, to say more or to say certain things. And the, the biggest reason behind that is often fear of saying the wrong thing, which I completely empathize with, right? Like you, as a leader, your words matter a lot. Um, and the best way that I have sort of talked it through with people is um, trying to turn that um, fear into a different type of openness. So. What I mean is um, the scariest part of saying the wrong thing is often because you're making like declarations of like, this is what we're going to do and this is exactly why we're going to do it. And I've definitely encouraged people and I try to practice this myself, right, is that instead of framing things like that, 
what we were talking about is like, okay, sharing actually the most important thing about this issue to me is this value. And that's what I'm optimizing around. And so because of that, the, the here's sort of like um, the logical pathway that got me there, but I'm open to feedback. If there's more things, better things that will help us get to that value. And that changes sort of the expectations around what your words have to mean for everybody, right? And so um, if anything there, I think like the more transparent we can be, um, I think it, it allows access, it allows um, people to contribute in new ways and helping whatever we can do to make leaders more comfortable with that would be sort of like a wonderful thing, yeah. Um, so, you know, having a conversation about healthy newsrooms also means that we definitely need to talk about competitive pay and benefits, right? That's a key component of this. Um, and uh, as you and I have talked about, we can't literally live on believing in our missions. And so, um, and nor do good leaders, right, or anyone really expect people to. And so this idea of um, being able to provide competitive pay and benefits being directly linked to funding, right, and how much money you have access to. Um, I know we're both dealing with that firsthand in different ways. And so um, how do you approach and think about that from where Charlottesville tomorrow is now? And Yeah. Yeah. I think... It's, we're just in this amazing moment because there are such high quality organizations represented in this room, such high quality organizations that have two people to 200 people in them, but all very high quality, you know, uh, from whatever sort of market size or organization size they come from. And for us at Charlottesville tomorrow, you know, we're, we're in a relatively small market actually, and the journalism needs in our community are massive. You know, whether you um, are voting uh, in a precinct that has 40,000 people or 4,000 people, those elected officials still need the same level of scrutiny. So, you know, that the, the ecosystem has changed a lot and the gaps are huge, but I don't think the model of how our organizations are capitalized, whether they're for-profit or non-profit, have changed nearly enough. I, I don't think it's changed enough. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the New York Times and Charlottesville Tomorrow are on the same internet. Uh, we can have impact locally and nationally. Not that we're exactly the same, but we are in completely different ecosystems in terms of how the internet treats us, in terms of how capital investment treats us, in terms of sort of the expectations of how much things cost to actually do. So, you know, for me, I'm just really grateful for the leadership in this room. I've watched Wendy C. Thomas at MLK 50, not just for the great journalism they do, but for how open they have been about uh, the challenges of creating equity in news. Um, so I just, you know, I don't have any amazing wisdom here to say, except that we need to keep pushing for equity in our ecosystem if we want equity in our news, if we want people who come from different backgrounds to be able to take this up as a profession, if we want people who have student loans to be able to work in our newsrooms, if we want people who maybe have obligations to care for family or don't have a safety net to work in our newsrooms. Uh, we really have to change at our core what we, how we fund it. Um, and I will just add real quick for folks who um, are not familiar with some of the um, work that MLK50 has done on this and that Wendy has done on this is that they published, you know, two fantastic pieces, um, one from Wendy's sort of point of view thinking about it as a leader and then one from Carrington's point of view as the reporter. Basically, the struggle was that, um, you know, uh, paying a competitive wage was not enough for um, one of Wendy's reporters to justify having that job because of the amount of student loan debt that he had had, right? And so I mean, he, a competitive wage in the journalism industry is right. not a competitive wage usually in the world right. is the problem. And so his struggle was like, I just, I need a higher paying job even though I wanna be a journalist here. And he, you know, he wrote a piece about that that they published and Wendy's sort of question is structurally like, how do I address this because do I, am, am I able to afford changing everybody's salary, right? Because that sort of changes what uh, equity looks like on pay scale internally. But then also, what are our responsibilities as an individual entity when it comes to dealing with uh, external structural problems that directly affect us, right? 
And so I think like being open about these types of struggles and being able to help each other and continue to actually try to figure stuff out is one of the most important things we can do. And it's one of the most revolutionary things we can do. You know, if, a, if many of our organizations make these kinds of changes, it will impact the ecosystem because we will be attracting uh, the kinds of journalists everybody wants and they will have to change too, right? So I, I'm really excited about that prospect in Central Virginia particularly. So I think in about three minutes, we'll start um, opening it up for questions. Um, so feel free to think through whatever you would like to ask us. Um, the last question, I think we'll talk through a little bit right before then, is what are, the, what are some of the things that you need to do this work when it comes to rethinking or remaking newsroom culture? Um, we have, our newsroom is so cool. <laughs> I wish you all could come and visit. Uh, we have such a, we have such a thoughtful, and hardworking team. Our, our problems are almost never related to like motivation or, I mean, our reporters put a lot of pressure on themselves. Uh, and, and I feel like my job is to try to open up the valve and take the pressure off a little bit actually. Um, but what I really, really want for the newsroom and for our community is runway. I want, you know, has anybody ever read Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own? I always think, I've thought about this book a lot. I have it on my shelf all the time and I look at it pretty often um, because Virginia Woolf said, what, what does a woman need to write? Needs, um, she needs money and she needs a room of one's own. Why, right? You need that stability to be able to think and write and to think long-term. And so I hope for, for this, you know, for the membership of Lion, for this uh, particular, particular group especially that in our ecosystem, we find ways to give our community that is telling their own stories, to give our reporters that kind of stability, that they have space, that they don't have to think about whether next month maybe they should start looking and thinking about uh, other gigs they can take on. I mean, I, just, I know a lot of journalists who drive Uber, uh, you know, or Lyft. Uh, is that the most optimal way to do great work especially for somebody who's doing deep work in community. Um, so I think that's my long way of saying, like one of the major things we need is runway. We need space to try. Yeah, um, and I think the obvious answer to that question is no, right? And uh, even though you meant it rhetorically, but sort of just um, the idea of needing to juggle so much um, for your own basic financial needs, right? Makes it very difficult for you to have as much focus. Um, and. Uh, one of the things that um, Lam uh, Soibo, who is a freelance journalist now, who has been a longtime investigative journalist, she wrote a piece this year that was basically the fact that she's doing a fellowship uh, so that she can work on one investigation basically for a whole year and it's funding about 50% of her time. And it's, it's despite having worked over a decade in a full-time journalism stable job, it is the first time that she's actually felt like she's had that support because all they expect her to do is work on this one investigation that they pitched and invested in. And um, it just really struck me when she wrote that piece because uh, it, it means that having a full-time job isn't necessarily the thing that provides you stability, right? And that it, like everything when it comes to newsroom culture plays into that, which is how do you feel like your newsroom is investing in you? Are you getting the time to do your work? Do you have to worry about doing other things on the side uh, in order to uh, either support yourself financially or because your workplace won't support you fully in doing your projects, so you have to start doing those projects on the side and then bringing them to your newsroom. Um, another element, I'll talk about one more thing and then we'll go to questions, which is sort of this proxim proximity to both wealth and funding is sort of two different things. Um, and for me, w one of the things early on when I started at Open News, Within a year, I became co-executive director because Erica Owens is absolutely wonderful and said, let's have a co-leadership model. And because of that, I really got exposed to sort of the world of funding. What does that mean? And I, I realized very quickly that despite being generally around or present at organizations at the editorial side, when I made that move, it was the first time that I realized, I see, like a lot of the conversations that we have are even like, where do you start, right? So like you might know the names of funders, but then how do you even break in if you've never been in that world of like high net worth individuals? Like how do you even communicate <laughs> or like have basic, you know what I mean? There's sort of like a level of like if you're not in a certain circle, 
breaking into it requires support um, and access and networks. And like, um, luckily, right, like I was working with other people at the time who could show me the ropes on some of that when I first got exposed to it. But that proximity is really interesting. And so like one of the wonderful things I feel like about this conference as well is right, there are funders here who are in support of local journalism specifically and trying to see folks succeed. But at the same time, right, funding can also mean um, not literally wealth, but also membership, right? And how do you even think about like, how do we get funding from our communities? Um, and how do we tell communities uh, kind of like the hub does, right? How do we tell communities honestly that we need their funding and why so that they will actually give to you? And those two things are expertise related. Um, they can both be an art and a science and getting access to that information so that you can then bring to your organization funding is really critical. And I think when you're starting out, that's probably like one of the, the huge questions that you have, right? Yeah. And I think people underestimate how, like, if, if you, you know, if you have proximity to wealth, it's a phrase that I really appreciate. If you have proximity to wealth, I think maybe you underestimate how difficult it is to build that in for yourself. <laughs> you know, like, if you go to, like, I, I went to this, like, sort of entrepreneurship event uh, in Charlottesville a couple weeks ago, and, and the advice is, like, have your pitch ready because you never know when your friend's uncle might want to hear it. And it's like... I don't know who your friends are, you know, but I'm not <laughs> hanging out over shrimp cocktail uh, talking to billionaires. It's not really how my life goes. So, you know, like thinking about those systems and how, and I, I appreciate this space very much too because I think it's a great start to breaking down that class system we have in journalism about funding and capital investment. Um, Nonprofit to for profit is really really important. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like um, there's like a million stories like that, right? Like I went to an event recently and somebody's startup got funded, and he said he his first donor was someone he met at his friend's wedding that was a random guest there, right? and I was like, good for you, <laughs> like, um, you know, and it, you know, this is some of the things like taking this um, this editor in chief role, right? Um, I was talking to this with my friends. And I said, like, this is, like, the amount of salary that I have today is the most amount of money anyone in my entire family has ever made, right? And, like, how do I even talk to my parents about that? And then, on the other hand, trying to sort of, like, navigate spaces where, like, people have access to way more money. Um, and, like, uh, being uh, an introvert in my soul, right? Then trying to figure out both of those things. Easy. Yeah. Um, like, how do I, like, I have no practice talking about this. I can't, I don't have any, like, personal connections to it. And then making that leap, doing my job, right, for my organization, um, working with our excellent CEO and interim CEO to sort of, like, support them however I can on this. Like, it's a new world. Um, yeah. Well, on that very optimistic note, we have our next panel, which is Leadership for Introverts, I think. Uh, <laughs> we'll all be there together. Um, yeah. I think, sorry, I can't see, I see some folks yes. lined up. Also, if you, you know, if you, if you, if for any reason you don't feel comfortable or can't come up, just raise your hand and we'll get some help uh, to bring a mic to you as well. Um, but if you can, just uh, come on and line up. But... Uh, maybe we'll start on this side, but if you can tell us who you are, tell us about your awesome work and your, your organization, and then lay your question on us. My name is, well, that's really loud. <laughs> My name is Camille Padilla Dalmau. My outlet that I founded is called Nueve Millones, which means nine million, and it's based in Puerto Rico. There's nine million Puerto Ricans across the world, and 63% are outside of Puerto Rico the most in the United States, so a lot of our audiences outside of Puerto Rico, but our reporters are based there. You talked about taking the pressure off of your reporters, and I'd like to ask to dig a little deeper in that. How do you communicate the importance of, of rest to your reporters and your team? Um, I am learning this skill. Uh, I, have to, I have to be really honest here because it takes a certain kind of sensitivity and you have to be really mindful to watch for it. I came up in cultures where it was all on you to figure out, you know, how your stress level was and how much work you need to do. And at the same time, it was like, what have you done for me lately? You know, from the managing or the producer, the, whoever was there. And I understand why, right? Like, they, in some ways, they had no choice. It was like, we have a show to put out. We have a product to put out. We have to do it. Um, 
But I think we can rethink newsroom cultures to be much more sensitive. So, you know, if you know, it's really simple things, right? If we know one of our reporters is at a school board meeting in the evening, and those things can go on, they can really go on if you've ever been at one. And in our part of the country as well, and probably most of the world, those things have become more and more contentious. So it's not a passive experience anymore. Um, if we know that the reporter has to do that this evening and they show up at our morning stand-up, we're all like, oh, you know, you don't need to be here. We could have we filled you in or you could have slacked us. You know, we encourage each other that way so that nobody feels like, I know they said you don't have to do this or you can take comp time or you can do this, but uh, we really actively encourage each other to do that. And there is some management to that. Now, again, I have to shout out to our managing editor because she's really sensitive about this kind of stuff. Um, there is some management about that, but actually it's our whole team looking out for each other. It's a culture, you know, that we're building together in the newsroom. Thank you. Um, I'll just add one last thing to that because I know Scalawag is here as well and following in their footsteps, right? Um, they, you know, they published a piece about it when I was at Open News. We invited them to come to SourceCon to talk all about rest because one of the things that was so incredible is that they gave their entire staff sort of multiple weeks off. Um, and so like some, some newsrooms close between sort of um, the like December holiday time and then come back in January. Um, but one of the things that Scalawag was willing to do was extend that time to basically an entire month so that everybody came back fresh amazing. for February. Um, and there was like all types of reasons. I highly recommend that you read about it. Um, but one of the first things that we ended up doing when I started at the markup, and this was not my idea, but the idea of our CEO, Nabiha, which is let's just give everybody two weeks off to reset. Um, there's so many reasons why we can take that time um, and we need to take that time. And so, you know, and the markup has been in an interim situation for many, many months. And so when I started, we just decided to give everybody two weeks off off the bat. Um, and I, I think like for some people, the feedback that I got was like, this is really incredible. And when when no one, the key is when no one else is working the pressure to keep working on your own is a little different, right? So it's like when you take vacation, but all of your colleagues are working, it's a different vibe. Um, and uh, it's not to say that every organization can do that at all times, but thinking outside of the box for what's allowed, you know, what other people have done before, I think pushing that boundary for what is rest, what can, what can we do for rest? Yeah. We have two weeks of publishing closure every year and the sort of you know, dog days of summer and then um, holidays time as well. And that, you know, it's also just a, a purely cold decision. It's like our, we know our community is sort of off the clock and not reading as much. Uh, and it's like the relative benefit of like just continuing to grind versus publishing. It's like actually we'll do better, you know, using that time to rest. Hi, thanks. I'm uh, I'm Jacqueline Ronson. I'm the managing editor for Discourse Community Publishing, um, and we're like four or five local news outlets in Canada, serving pretty ooh, ooh, Canada, <laughs> serving pretty I'm small communities. Here. You're Canadian. I'm a new. I'm, I'm born in Newfoundland. Oh wow! Exciting. <laughs> cool. Um, uh, yeah, so I sort of became an accidental manager and newsroom leader from become from reporter to a growing company, um, and just I'm starting to figure out that that's my role and how how to do it. And I'm wondering um, if either of you have uh, tips or strategies or um, um, processes related to building a great, sustainable, radical newsroom culture in an environment where you're almost exclusively digital and you're not in the same place as other people. Uh, so I can talk about that a little bit. I, I think don't know that, that anybody does this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, it's a great question, right? Because um, a lot of, so okay, I, I, one foundational thought to lay out there first, which is the way that I think about it is that in journalism, we need to separate our management skills from our editing skills, right? And um, editing skills, thank you. <laughs> and like, you know, I think historically we have severely underinvested in the management skill side of it, but in fact, the rest of the world, like all other industries, 
like invest severely in that side of it because they often don't have these roles like we do in journalism where you have this totally other job that's part of your job, which is editing, right? And that's its own skill set. And so when it comes to management, I think the key there is that there's great programs in journalism that is cultivating management skill, but there's also like generally great information out there from every other industry about it. And there's like tons of stuff. If you want to talk to me afterward, I have like literal blogs to recommend. But um, I think there's a wealth of information. We should just start seeking it from outside of our own industry, 100%. Like the most valuable management skills that I have learned is when I've looked outside of journalism to try to see like, what are the industries that have historically uh, really invested in that? What are they recommending people do, right? And then the second element of like healthy, sustainable journalism, right, uh, is I think for me, um, thinking and, and doing it remotely is that I think the pandemic showed us a lot of things, right? Um, and allowed us to see proof of what could be possible when it comes to building culture, building trust, building relationships online, when we don't literally have access to each other in person. And I think there is a difference between how people feel online and in person, but in fact, you can have an equally valuable connection building experience online, even if it feels different. And the key there is to just be um, extra, extra intentional. Um, and I think, you know, like uh, the basic stuff that we've all heard about over communication being as direct and clear as possible, right? Like in my own Slack messages, it frequently includes whether this is urgent or not urgent, right? Uh, no matter what, so that people understand, do I need them to respond now or not? But on top of that saying like, um, I might ask somebody a question and then following that up literally with the reason I ask is because of this, right? And you can do that in day to day, but people can pick up in your body language to get those cues and online you can't. And I think just creating intentional spaces, thinking about what do people in my newsroom, if I think about them as a community, right, that has like shared information needs, what, um, what types of things should I give explicit permission and encouragement for people to be able to do? And then how do I fit that into my structure? A lot of people have asked me about like creating Slack communities in particular, because I did that for open news a lot and um, I help administer the Journalists of Color Slack. And I, it's, it's all about being intentional of what you actually want and then trying to like shove it into what Slack's structure is like versus thinking about how do I make the Slack experience good, right? It's not about that. It's about how do I make my community experience good for my newsroom as journalists and then what can Slack do can, to actually help me provide that, yeah. I mean, it's a skill because getting a Slack message isn't always like, ooh, joy, you know? But when it comes from CC, it's like, yes! You got to use those emojis. Right. That's what I'm talking about. Thanks so much. Okay, got to lean into the emojis. I'm picking that up as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm Sam Gross. I'm a co-founder of Stacker, which is a, a data journalism newsroom focused on producing and sharing uh, stories with uh, local uh, newsrooms through a free newswire. Um, my question is about uh, culture as it pertains to conversations and decision-making about coverage decisions, uh, a range of stories that trigger a pretty big debate right now. Our newsroom continues to expand. I think real estate and housing is, is just one example, um, but best practices, experiences um, around how to foster a really strong conversation culture there. Can start. Uh, it's such a hard question, isn't it? Because in part, you know, as an industry, we have this culture of journalists who are hungry and really want to do a lot. Uh, and and sometimes the hardest thing is to figure out where are your boundaries uh, so that we can have rest, so that we can uh, have healthy workplace cultures. Um, for us, it's all about the service we're trying to provide and the community we serve. So we do a lot. We really um, put a lot of investment into community listening, um, both one-on-one. -on -one. I've, I've met 124 community members in Charlottesville since December. I take a lot of meetings with anybody who wants to talk uh, and people who I reach out and, and really want to hear from about what they want in, in our local news ecosystem that's missing. Um, and, and we do audience survey and we do a lot of that kind of thing to help us decide, okay, these are the gaps that we can help fill. And define that with the reporters, with the editorial, uh, on the editorial side, very clearly so that, it, and it's not always perfect every day, but we know, okay, this is a story that we, we know it's important. Also, we are not structured to cover that story because we have sort of chosen the things we wanna do really well um, and as we grow, we'll add more, um, which we know our community wants, and we're very, we try to communicate as best we can, you know? 
why why we can't cover X, Y, and Z. Um, so I think it begins from knowing who it is you want to serve, actually, a lot of those choices, and continually bringing your editorial conversation back to that question. I, I love that answer, but can I tweak it just because I, I actually Please. meant more around like debates around how to cover things, uh, especially for really difficult topics that are getting a lot more conversation now as people re-examine uh, traditional assumptions. If, let me just reflect back to if I'm getting this right. So basically w within a newsroom, right? Like if we're going to have a conversation as staff about what we should cover, uh, and I'm guessing around like topics that have a lot of scrutiny or disagreement potentially is what you're getting at. Um, I mean, d that disagreement is very healthy in an editorial planning conversation, and I think you have to build a workplace culture where that you can do that without it being a personal attack on each other, um, and that that takes some practice. And, and actually, the way you phrase it with like being direct is like saying what you want to say and making sure it's kind. You know, taking out anything that's not kind is a beautiful way to think about it, actually, um, because that kind of conversation is so important. Grappling with those those issues are so important. Um, for us, um, so there's like a model of manufacturing, I think this is the Toyota way, where you know their, their whole thing, the, the reason why Toyota's manufacturing was different, right, is that every employee, no matter what level of the company they were at, had the, op had the ability to push the big red button. And so I think about that a lot in sort of editorial workspace. Does everybody have the ability to push that red button? So, for example, we go through headline committee. We call it headline committee. Um, but every headline, we have like three options of headlines. The, our whole team, including you know our director and our development officer, who might have totally fresh eyes, gets to see those headlines. And people often press big red buttons if they see something that's like, I don't think this is what you meant, or you guys need to look at this, or this, this is resonating, and I would click on it even though I know nothing about the story, and this one isn't. So we try to build those processes in. So it's like, yeah, everybody needs to be able to put their input here. And generally, we come to a consensus where not, maybe not everybody agrees, but everybody agrees on the way forward. Thank you. I think we have time for one more, it looks like, yeah. Um, William Philpot, I'm unaffiliated. I had a uh, startup that didn't survive the pandemic. Have, we have, so many of us have yeah. that in our, yeah. in our uh, So the first question for CC, what's your D&D &D character? <laughs> I have so many, but I will share the most recent one I played. Um, I actually, this is kind of funny. Um, I play a thief who, um, so sorry, so a, a thief who is a rogue, um, <laughs> but she plays it in this D&D &D uh, world that's uh, called grit and glory, meaning it's kind of like Game of Thrones, where like if you get hurt, like it's going to be bad, right? Versus in normal D and D, if you get hurt, you just chug a potion and you're like good to go. Um, and so it's been kind of dangerous because when you do normal like movie style thiefy things like running on rooftops, if I slip, like I might die. And uh, I've never played D and D this way before, and the person who runs it for me loves playing it this way, and so I've been learning a lot about that. Okay, now back to the news. <laughs> See, this is, this is the courage of CCUA. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, how, do you, how do you view visuals within this community? Um, I was a wire photographer, um, and we kind of, I, mean, I felt kind of as a photographer, kind of like on the outside of this community, and it's kind of hard to break in because um, it seems like visuals are a luxury and not so much a necessity, and, or at least that's how it's viewed. And so how do you uh, blend those cultures that there's been that traditional photo word herder balance, you know, is kind of like, you know, and how, you know, how do you create that new, like you would, you know, any other kind of divorce culture as well? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, uh, before I answer that question, just real quick, I know people were standing up to ask us questions. Angelina and I are going to just hang out here, and you can yeah, please come up and ask us afterward. Um, so this is a great question, and I have a theory. I don't know if it is correct, and it may be like a hot take, but I will just share it because it's just my working theory, which is something I've been trying to figure out is there are not a lot of people in my background in leadership positions such as editor-in-chief, right? Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of reason for that, including the fact that um, the, there's like new parts of journalism coming into being all the time, whether it was in the last 200 years or in the last 10 years, like literal new jobs, right? And so as those things get created, it takes time for you to start in those roles and then get to EIC. 
And so now that I'm in this role, the way that I think about it is very clear, which is our, our goal is to get critical information to people, right? And at the markup, we're specifically trying to explain how people in communities, when and how they get harmed by technology. And so what is literally the best way for us to accomplish that? That is how we should do the story. And so like words are frequently the default in journalism if you're in print, if you're in magazine, right? And um, I feel like a lot of digital uh, nonprofit media follows a similar pattern I certainly have in my own career, right? Because it's sort of like imported from that world of print. And my own experience is that I'm, I'm looking for, um, whether it's photo, video, graphics, to me, uh, their biggest values when they become a force multiplier for how we tell the story. And so if a picture is better at communicating something to someone in the same way that a simple chart is better at communicating to someone, we should do that instead of the paragraph we were gonna write that would not give people as direct of an access, as emotional of a ability to connect with whatever they're seeing. And so the way that it plays out in my newsroom, and this is something that I've been talking to people slowly about, is I just tell people like, for a given story, I don't want you to think about um, how we are going to tell the story before we just think about what the story is. Um, and I also don't want us to be limited by um, reality. <laughs> so I don't know if that's a good way of phrasing it, but um, I'll, I'll put it this way, right, which is, country is not limited by yeah, reality. We shouldn't moment. be limited by reality. <laughs> um, what I mean by that is, you know, I came up coding and um, coders in journalism have a very specific take, which is like, we're very fast and loose with our coding. Meaning if you had a proper computer science background, people are often like very upset about how journalists code. And it's because we, our main goal is to get something up for readers, right? And not to write the most beautiful code you could ever use forever. And as a part of that, I would imagine ways in which I wanted to tell stories, but I knew at that moment in time, I didn't know how to execute on it, and it was my job to figure out if I could like, figure out how to do it. And so for similar reasons, I feel like when we approach uh, how we do our journalism, we should really just think about what is actually the best story that we need to tell here and what is the story, and then in like after that is determined, we should think about what is the literal way for us to accomplish that without thinking about what has been done before, right? Like your answer could be, we don't do anything on our website. Instead, we should host a community event, right? And that is a valid and good journalism answer. And so I think I'm going a little far afield here, but when it comes to like, uh, how do you blend that culture? That's sort of how I think about it, which is remove like this concept of medium from people's baseline of how we should do our work and then allow that to propel everyone to have more creative ideas so that they're not thinking of like photo as other or video as what those people do, right? But rather like, oh, well actually this is, what is the most effective way for me to do this? And we just go in that direction together. Well, I think, I think we're out of time. We have a big I, zero seconds you know, thing on it's us. It's been looking at us for a little bit. Yes. But, uh, I so appreciate you all. Yeah. Uh, thank you for your time, and thank you to the organizer of the conference.